it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. You can tell how excited I am for baseball season because we have been popping out Rico Bronias like crazy lately. We are popping Ricos here. We're popping Ricos there. We're Ricoing all over the damn place. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Thank you for downloading. Please subscribe to Rico Bronia. Rate Rico Bronia and download Rico Bronia. The podcast that is just, we're, we're crazy. We love the Mets. We're very excited for the start of the season. We're very excited for the start of spring training. So we've done a lot of Ricos. In fact, Last week, we did a History of the Mets Offseason Part 1 edition. If you haven't heard that, I'd advise you go back and listen to it. And I started with what I remember as a fan. So I did not go back into the 80s or the 70s or 60s, not out of disrespect to those eras, but out of, I don't remember it. So I'm giving you the perspective of what happened, what I thought at the time, and obviously how these offseasons worked out. We stopped right before 2005. I thought that was a good line of demarcation for a couple of reasons because 2005 was a real change in Met history you know we really saw this franchise move in a very 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 different direction and I remember the way 2004 ended it was obviously a really disappointing season under Art Howe it was the end of an era of Met baseball it was the end of Al Leiter it was the end of John Franco Todd Zeal was even given a big send-off at the end of that 2004 season, and then the Mets made major sweeping changes. They changed the manager, they changed the general manager, and then, and this is also kind of important, and this is something we sort of forget about because we mostly remember the Wilpon era as the post-Madoff era, in which they were not spending, in which the Mets were treated like a mid-market or small-market team, but before that, there were eras, there were pockets of Met baseball where the Wilpons would be very aggressive in spending. And in hiring Omar Minaya to be the new general manager, and then him subsequently hiring Willie Randolph to be the new Met manager, the Mets went out and then spent in an offseason that I think is the most memorable of my lifetime. I'm curious if you as a Met fan feel the same way. And it doesn't mean everything worked out. It doesn't mean we can look back on it and say, boy, that was the greatest offseason of all time. I didn't say greatest. I said most memorable. Because the New York Mets went out and added two elite-level, superstar, game-changing free agents. Let's start with Pedro. Uh, Pedro Martinez was always a guy, as a kid growing up, that I admired, that I loved. As a kid, I collected baseball cards. 
I think we all sort of did. And I became obsessed with the great starting pitcher. Obviously, I didn't have guys on my team like that. It was more an appreciation for watching Greg Maddox, an appreciation for watching Randy Johnson. But the pitcher I appreciated more than anybody else was Pedro Martinez. And when the Montreal Expos decided to trade him, I remember begging my dad and begging WFAN as I listened from afar as a kid. I begged to it adamant objects. Can the Mets trade for Pedro? Can we be the team that swoops in and makes the trade for Pedro Martinez? It didn't happen, though. I would tell you a year earlier, before the Expos traded him, there were rumors in spring training of that previous year that they were entertaining the thought of trading Pedro Martinez. And that would have been the time to make the trade for him. (laughs) You know, that would have been the perfect moment. But the Mets never struck. They never got Pedro. We all know what happened. He was traded to the Boston Red Sox. And Pedro Martinez went from really good pitcher to legendary. He went from burgeoning star into the star into the modern-day Sandy Koufax, which is what he was. He was a right-handed Dominican Sandy Koufax. That's what he did for a period of time that I think is unmatched, arguably, in the history of baseball. I even wrote a term paper about that in high school, in which, and I apologize, this is going to offend the older audience, where I compared Pedro to Sandy Koufax. I literally did it. And I used statistical evidence from back then, I mean, we're talking about the year 2000 when I'm a junior in high school to support while even though Pedro didn't pitch as often as Sandy Koufax because different era, he was actually more dominant. And I used the eras that both guys pitched in to try to prove my thesis. Meanwhile, I got an A, but I don't know if I got an A because I proved it right. I think I got an A because the teacher had no idea what the hell I was talking about. So I bring this up because Pedro Martinez was a guy that from afar I admired. And then as a Met fan, and I think most of us can relate to this, we rooted for him so passionately against the Yankees. He was for a while their kryptonite, and then it eventually turned the other way, which of course turned into Pedro Martinez being, uh, or the Yankees being the daddies of Pedro Martinez. So when he got to free agency after the 2004 season, after the Red Sox broke the curse, won the World Series, and Pedro was fine during that run, we knew he wasn't the same guy. You know, I think you knew that, that he had the aura of Pedro Martinez, but the statistics told you that he wasn't that same dominant pitcher he was during that Kofaxian run he had. In fact, in 2004, he had a 3.90 ERA, threw a lot of innings, which was good, and he was healthy, which was good, but it was a far cry from what he had done previously. 2.22 ERA in 03, leading the league. 2.26 ERA, leading the league. The year before that, he didn't pitch much in 2001, but he was great. 2000 was arguably one of the most dominant seasons in the history of baseball. 1.74 ERA, 0.73 whip. Man, I go through these numbers all day. Point was, Pedro Martinez at 32 going into his age 33 season was not coming off of a great year, but I wanted him. I was obsessed with that's the guy we need to sign. And the belief I had at the time, and it turned out to be the talking points everybody used, was this changes everything. This brings a credibility to the New York Mets that no one else can bring. I mean, no offense to Tom Glavin. I know Tom Glavin was a future Hall of Famer when the Mets had signed him a few years earlier, but Tom Glavin wasn't Pedro Martinez. And so early in the offseason, the idea of the Mets signing him was something I was completely fascinated with. And I remember where I was when he signed. I was working at Sirius Satellite Radio at the time. 
on my uh, office or in my office on the 36th floor. When I got the news that Pedro was signing, I jumped for joy. I was so, so excited. Even though I knew we were probably getting a shell of the player he was. But after signing Pedro Martinez, the other infinity stone, I don't even know what that means, but CP, the franchise, tweeted that at me about Mikel Bridges being the final infinity stone of Leon Rose. So I just borrow it and use it now because it sounds cool. My infinity stone, I don't even think that makes sense, was Carlos Beltran. Because Carlos Beltran had just authored the greatest postseason run in the history of baseball. Now, not his fault his team couldn't get past the National League Championship Series, losing Game 7 to the St. Louis Cardinals. But man, oh man, that run was intoxicating. And not only did Beltran give you that incredible postseason run, he was far and away the best player available in free agency, which doesn't always make the guy that person, the guy you want, but he was 27 years old. He was a switch-hitting Glow glove caliber center fielder who at that point in his career had already driven in 100 runs five times. He had already completed how many 30 stolen base seasons. He was on my fantasy team that year. I do remember that. The first year of the fantasy league I'm still in today. And he was intoxicating because those two guys, to add both of them in free agency, arguably the two best players out there, a Hall of Fame pitcher, a guy that gives great credibility immediately, and then to go add the best position player available, who's coming off one of the great postseason runs in the history of baseball, when the Mets completed that deal, and that came second, Pedro came first, Beltron came second. Pedro signed, if memory serves correct, I would say it was probably in December. Beltron signed in the middle of January. And upon signing Carlos Beltron, I was so freaking excited. Weren't we all? It didn't bother me that he had offered his services to the Yankees. It didn't bother me at all. It didn't bother me that the Mets had to just be the highest bidder because that's what I thought free agency was. That's how you get guys. You don't get guys by having them just necessarily want to play for your team. You got to buy them. And the Mets bought the two best available free agents of all time. And that's why 04 and 05 was the most exciting offseason I ever had as a Mets fan. Now, they weren't done. They acquired Doug Mankiewicz, a move I was really excited about. If you have to ask yourself why, ask yourself what podcast you're listening to right now. You're listening to a Met podcast named after Rico Bronya. So I'm not saying Doug Mankiewicz is Rico Bronya, but Doug Mankiewicz was a gold glove caliber first baseman. So even though he didn't have the big stick, even the stick of Rico himself, I was excited about just getting that kind of uh, vacuum cleaner at first base. They did pursue Carlos Delgado, who is far different than Mankiewicz, but they ended up not getting him, which was a little disappointing. But considering Beltron and Pedro, and I like the glove of Doug Mankiewicz, I wasn't devastated. They also signed Daesung Koo. They also brought in Marlon Anderson. They also signed Ramon Castro. And of course, they hired a brand new manager in Willie Randolph. How did that offseason work out? <laughs> I'd say it's pretty damn good because they got Carlos Beltron. And even though Carlos Beltran had the ups and the downs with a lot of Met fans, and his first season was certainly not a very good one, when you think about the standards that we had for him coming off of the years he was coming off of, as we sit here all these years later, that offseason changed everything. 
that offseason was the beginning of, you know, it wasn't the greatest run in Met history because it was only one playoff appearance and it was only, you know, and a run that ended prematurely when you think about it. Go back to our Game 7 NLCS rewatch if you want more thoughts on that 06 team. But I look back at that offseason as one of the most consequential offseasons in Met history and one of the best. The season for Beltron was so mediocre in 2005. He went out and played a lot. He played injured, and the performance showed you. His batting average was low. His on-base wasn't high. His slugging was the lowest of his career. He only hit 16 home runs and stole 17 bases. A year earlier, he hit 38 home runs and stole 42 bases. In his first year with the Mets, he had a 744 OPS. It would actually work out as one of the lowest OPSs of his career. But even with that offseason that he had, I remember thinking, this isn't who he is. It's a bad first year, and it was frustrating at the time, but I was confident the best would be yet to come. So the 2005 offseason, I still look at the 04 and 05 offseason, if we're being specific, as one of the most consequential offseasons of all time. With that said, what they did the following year, that's what really took them from being a good team and a fun team to a damn good team. The core may have been built in 0405, specifically signing Beltron, but I'm going to go through some of these moves they made going into the 06 season. Obviously, we know the results of 06, having the best record in the National League, getting to the seventh game of the NLCS, but they made so many good moves. But before I get to them, I want to start with the negative. And the negative was... I wasn't convinced as a Met fan that Mike Piazza's time with the Mets was over. I had a hope that Piazza still had a little bit left and maybe the Mets would bring Mike Piazza back for another season. That was certainly not the assumption because when Mike Piazza ended the 2005 season, we kind of just thought, for the most part, well, that's it. He's not coming back. And what's funny is when you look back at Piazza in 2005, he was still a productive player. He just wasn't what he was in 2000. He wasn't that same dominant player. But in 2005, his final year with the Mets at the age of 36, he had 19 home runs with a 780 OPS in 113 games as a catcher. You know, I think that when you take out the unreasonable expectations that he set for himself earlier in his career you know that that wasn't bad now 2005 was also the year in which the Mets realized he can't play first base because in 2005 at age 36 years old when Mike Piazza played for the Mets he only caught he had a couple of games at DH when they had interleague play in American League ballparks but he became just a catcher so I had held out hope and I know a lot of it was sentimental that they were going to bring Mike Piazza back. I thought that. I At least I hoped that. Even when they made the acquisition of Paul LaDuca, it was like, well, why not bring Mike back? Mike can catch half the time. Mike could be a right-handed bat off the bench. But obviously, that just wasn't the case. He ended up in San Diego, and Piazza was not a part of that 06 team. Uh, I still think back at that and say, boy, wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't have been nice to have Piazza on one more good Met team. I don't think it would have made a difference, necessarily. Paul Duca ended up having such a great year in 06 and fit perfectly in that lineup as the two-play sitter. And at that point, Piazza was not willing to just become a bench player. But that was the one negative of that 05 and 06 offseason. I had held out hope 
that Piazza was coming back. But the Mets made a lot of moves. They traded for Paul Aduca, giving up Gabby Hernandez to acquire him. They made another trade with Miami, acquiring Carlos Delgado, who they failed to get a year earlier, trading Mike Jacobs and Yusimro Petit. Petit ended up having a pretty damn long career, by the way. <laughs> Not bad. Mike Jacobs was famous for, in the prior year, hitting a few home runs after he was called up, and Pedro Martinez basically bullied the Mets and said, you can't send them down. How could you send them down? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other big one was the free agent signing of Billy Wagner. In the previous year, Braden Looper was the closer. Need I say more? So the Mets went out and added one of the top closers in all of baseball, potentially a future Hall of Famer. But how about these under-the-radar moves? They traded Jay Wong So for Duanar Sanchez, who was great until the taxicab incident. They traded Chris Benson and Jorge Julio to the Orioles for John Main, who ended up making his first start after like a I think there was a rain delay and a guy got scratched. Maine made a start, pitched well, and then all of a sudden he became a part of the rotation and they had signed Pedro Feliciano before that season as well. That's a good offseason. <laughs> I mean, that is... LaDuca, your starting catcher. Delgado, your starting first baseman. Billy Wagner, your closer. Great until the playoffs. John Maine, key part of the rotation. Turned out, remember, he started game one of the division series that year, too. And they signed Jose Valentin, who turned out to be their starting second baseman. So 04 to 05 is the more memorable offseason. But when you look at pound for pound, damn, that was good, especially in the short term. How about the offseason going into 2006? Here's always the problem, though. And this occurs in med history throughout med history. It is a constant that after they get close, after their success, they don't have an offseason that puts up enough the following year. They don't do enough. They rest on their laurels. In 2000, after they won the pennant, they lost their best pitcher in Mike Hampton, or one of their best pitchers in Mike Hampton. They had one of the great players in all of baseball want to play for them in Alex Rodriguez, they don't get Alex. They lose Mike Hampton. They say, here's Kevin Apier. Just to jump ahead a few years, though we'll get to it, 2015, they lose their catalyst in the postseason the following year, Daniel Murphy. So 2007, what happens? There's nothing that jumps out. There's nothing from the core that disappeared. But I want you to listen to this. They lost Chad Bradford. Now, you may say, well, what does that mean? He was one of their most reliable relievers. They lost Chad Bradford. They lost Darren Oliver, a long man. They lost Cliff Floyd. They traded away Heath Bell. We didn't know that he would actually turn into a pretty good reliever. And while that doesn't sound awful, here's what they added. They added Jorge Sosa. They added Scott Schoenweiss. They added Ricky Lede. They added Chan Ho Park. They added Sandy Alomar. They added Fernando Tati Sr. They added Moises Alou. And I'll say this about Moises Alou. If the guy could just stay healthy, 
he could hit. I mean, it was never a problem with that. So the offseason going into 07, I don't remember panicking about it. But looking back on it, it wasn't enough. They needed to do more coming off of such a successful but falling short season that was 2006. Now they collapsed in 2007. So 2008 turned into a really important offseason where the Mets had to go out and get a lot better. And to their credit, I give them credit for this, they sort of did. They let Tom Glavin go after that debacle, closing out the 2007 season. They let Paul LaDuca go. They replaced LaDuca with Brian Schneider. They make that trade, which I found out about on the air with Beningo at the time. Lastings Millage for Ryan Church and Brian Schneider. And our gut reactions to that trade, even though I can't say that it worked out this way, but our gut reaction was, this is horrible. We didn't like it. Now, looking back on it, Lastings Millage didn't turn into anything. But Ryan Church and Brian Schneider did not exactly give us goosebumps, to say the least. So that was a very blah trade. But the big trade they made, and it occurred Super Bowl week as the Giants were getting set for the Patriots, was acquiring Johan Santana. Carlos Gomez, Philip Umber, Dielos Guerrera, and Kelvin Mulvin goes to the Minnesota Twins. The Mets get back Johan. The Yankees were interested in Johan. They did not get him. I think the Twins probably put a Yankee tax on them in terms of what they were asking for. And that was another galvanizing trade. Even better than signing Pedro or signing Tom Glavin, which we didn't love, or even trading for Mike Hampton. Yohan Santana was one of the best pitchers in baseball, and it came with a brand new contract. And so as much as they didn't do enough in 07, I thought, that's the key word. I thought that this move was going to be the difference. And the truth was, he did everything he could. Because when I think back to the lost pennant race of 2008, I don't love to call it a collapse. I don't think it was a collapse. They lost the pennant race. But when I think back to the lost pennant race of 2008, I think of Johan Santana on three days rest with a torn meniscus. How can I not? That game got into my book, My Mets Bible, on sale April 2nd. I'll do a podcast about this book for those that are interested. So I, I liked that offseason at the time. But after they lose the pennant race of 2008, what are they going to do going into a brand new stadium of City Field and try to fix the issues of the previous year? And what Omar Minaya focused on was, it was almost like whack-a-mole. So their issue at the end of 08 was they had no bullpen. Billy Wagner was hurt. He needed Tommy John surgery. Luis Ayala became the Met closer. So the Mets had no bullpen at the end of 2008. So their priority during that offseason was, well, let's just address the bullpen. They make the trade for J.J. Putz and Sean Green, not that Sean Green, but a reliever Sean Green. They signed Francisco Rodriguez. And I admit, I like both of those deals. The only thing I didn't like about the J.J. Putz trade, I didn't think J.J. Putz would suck the way he did and be gone after a year. I didn't love giving up Joe Smith. Of all the guys they made, they gave away in that trade. They traded Aaron Hallman. They traded Andy Chavez. They traded Jason Vargas. They traded Joe Smith. I didn't love giving up Joe Smith. I thought he had a chance to be a really good reliever with this team. And unfortunately, I was right about that because Joe Smith was a really solid, reliable reliever for a bunch of years in Major League Baseball. And the Mets gave him up for one year of crappiness of J.J. Putz. I understood the thought that Manaya had. 
Omar's thought was, let's fix the bullpen. So let's go get J.J. Put Sean Green and Francisco Rodriguez. Voila. The problem is the rest of the other team went into the shitter. That was the problem. Uh, they also signed LeVon Hernandez. You almost forget he was a Met. They signed Alex Cora. Almost forget he was a Met. They signed Gary Sheffield. It was right before the start of the season. He did it his 500th home run and had a productive season. I don't want to kill the guy. But looking back at that offseason, it just wasn't enough. Uh, I also think the Mets ran into just the bad luck of 09. They built a stadium that they were not equipped to play in. And this was the beginning of the end. Like, this really was the end of us. The Wilpons got their new stadium in which they ignored the history of the Mets. The Madoff stuff started to come out slowly but surely. And we wouldn't see 500 till 2015. So buckle up, folks. Let's get set for some crappy off seasons. How about going into the 2010 season? They lose Carlos Delgado. They lose Brian Schneider. They lose J.J. Putz. And they make a lot of small moves. They sign Hisanori Takahashi. They bring back Mike Jacobs. They acquire Gary Matthews Jr. And they make a very little unknown move that turns out to be pivotal. They sign R.A. Dickey. But the big move of that offseason was Jason Bay. And I go back to that discussion that I had on the air with Beningo, my partner at the time. It was three significant free agents. There was Jason Bay, there was Matt Holiday, and there was John Lackey. Those are the three guys that were available. And there was a demand of, hey, they got to get one of these guys. At first, I preferred Lackey just to improve the rotation. But I wanted Matt Holiday. Like, I just thought he was the better player than Jason Bay. But the appeal of Jason Bay, I know to Beningo, was he did it in Boston. And if he performed in Boston, then he'll be good in New York. What I also remember about the signing of Jason Bay is it took forever. It was so anticlimactic when they finally signed him because it had been rumored for just weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. I did not expect that Jason Bay would be the out-and-out disaster he turned into. I don't think any of us could have thought that. So while I wasn't, that wasn't my number one choice by any stretch, I also didn't hate it. I wasn't sitting there saying, this guy's going to be a disaster. Jason Bay turned out to be one of the worst signings in the history of the Mets. Going into 2011, this is the Sandy Alderson we have no money to spend. We're rebuilding. Put it this way, Met fans. I want you to listen to the guys they added going into 11 and then try to make yourself feel bad about this offseason. Because as underwhelming as you may feel about the David Stearns offseason, think back to this offseason from Sandy Alderson. You ready? <laughs> and this is year one. Bring back Jason Isringhausen. Sign Scott Hairston. Sign Chris Young. Sign DJ Carrasco. Sign Chris Capuano. Sign Taylor Buckles. And then take from the Rule 5 draft Brad Emus and Pedro Beato. I mean, my freaking God. That was the offseason. As much trouble as some Met fans may have at trying to rationalize this team in 2024. Think about 2011. That'll make you feel better. And I fell for it. I remember thinking Brad Emus is going to be the next Dan Ugla. <laughs> that did not work out. 
Thinking back to these off seasons is actually really, really depressing. You ready for 2012? Oh, my God. Frank Francisco, John Roush, and then finally giving up on Angel Pagan and trading him to the Giants for Andres Torres and Ramon Ramirez. Holy crap. That's the offseason. That's the team we're looking at. So I want you to do me a favor because I don't think a lot of people who listen to the Rico Bronia actually think this is the worst offseason in Met history. They may just be disappointed. But if you have a friend who thinks this offseason is the worst offseason in the history of the New York Mets, please share with them the names I just said. Say, hey, remember when the Mets' big offseason was Frank Francisco, John Roush, and trading Angel Pagan for Ramon Ramirez and Andres Torres? Remember when the Mets' big moves were Rule 5 draft selections like Brad Emus and Pedro Beato? And they were all pumped up because they added Taylor Buckholz, Jason Isringhausen, and DJ Carrasco to the bullpen? 2013. <laughs> it's not getting much better. It really didn't get much better. Now, the Mets were developing young players at the time, so that's good. That's a positive. Matt Harvey's on the way up. Uh, They traded Beltron and got a young Zach Wheeler. He's on the way up. And they also made the other trade, which I think now we can judge all these years later, as a good trade, but not as good as we thought. The Mets traded R.A. Dickey coming off the Cy Young Award, along with Josh Tolley and Mike Nickias to the Blue Jays, for Travis Darno, Noah Syndergaard, John Buck, and there was a, a minor league outfielder that came over too. With Travis Darno being in Atlanta now, with Noah Syndergaard bouncing around baseball, with R.A. Dickey retired, we now have a final result to that trade. And it turned out to be a good one. I think we'd all agree. I don't think there's any debate on if it's good or not. I think that we thought for a while this could go down as one of the great trades in the history of the Mets. I think, unfortunately, with them not winning the World Series in 15, because winning it, I think, would have secured it as you know an all-timer, and Syndergaard not really getting to finish his story with the Mets, unfortunately, and Travis Darno being DFA and then ending up in Atlanta, of all places, it still looked really good trade. I'm not telling you it wasn't. I don't think it had the, the impact that maybe we had hoped. As we were sitting there during the postseason run of 2015, I think we thought, better than what it actually turned out to be. But that was a move I was definitely in favor of. You know, I remember getting very upset uh, with John Feinstein used to do CBS Sports Minutes. And I respect John, nothing personal. But he did a CBS Sports Minute ripping the cheap Wilpons for trading R.A. Dickey because they didn't want to pay him. And it annoyed me greatly because I don't like the Wilpons. I never love the Wilpons, but I, I try to be fair. I think I'm fair. I hope you think I'm fair. I may be an idiot or wrong, but I really genuinely try to be as fair as I can. And I thought the Wilpons were right to trade R.A. Dickey. Now, you want to tell me they had ulterior motives because they didn't want to pay him? Okay, well, they were probably smart to not want to pay a 38-year-old knuckleballer coming off a Cy Young. And I love the fact that Sandy Alderson traded him at the height of his value. Usually, that's not a popular opinion to trade someone when their value's high. In this case, it was a no-brainer. You got to go out and get the right players. I couldn't tell you what and who was going to turn into what, but I did know that that was the right move to make. And I got bothered by those that took it as, well, it's a typical Wilpon move. The Mets made plenty of typical Wilpon moves. That wasn't one of them. The rest of the offseason, typical Wilpon moves. (laughs) 
They signed Carlos Torres. They signed Scott Rice, a lefty reliever. They signed Sean Markham. They brought in Latroy Hawkins, and they signed Marlon Byrd. Marlon Byrd turned out to be a pretty good signing because he was so good, and then they traded him at the deadline before he got busted for steroids again. So it was a very underwhelming offseason of 2013, 12 into 13. But they did make the right call trading R.A. Dickey. Obviously, 2013 turned out to be the year we all watched Matt Harvey dominate until he needed Tommy John surgery. The offseason going into 14. First, they lose Justin Turner, which annoyed me at the time. I didn't know Justin Turner was then going to go have a great career for the next decade and become a better player, but he was a useful player. Back then, he was useful. And to just non-tender him and have him leave for nothing bothered me in the moment. But the Mets went out and signed Curtis Granderson. And it was a move at the time I liked. Veteran player, lefty slugger, has proven he can handle New York. I was good with it. The Bartolo Colon signing. I I preferred Phil Hughes. Phil Hughes was the other arm that was available in free agency. I wanted them to add a veteran arm. I was more intrigued by Phil Hughes because I thought Phil Hughes, because of his age, could yield the Mets a bigger return moving forward. So just just so you know, because I do want to hold myself accountable, in year one, Phil Hughes was tremendous. His first year with the Minnesota Twins was actually, believe it or not, Yankee fans, hold your ears, the best year of his career. He actually finished in the top 10 in Cy Young voting, made 32 starts through 209 innings, had a 3-5 ERA. So a year in to Phil Hughes versus Bartolo Colon, because I preferred Hughes over Colon, I was like, see, see, see. But here's where I was wrong. Phil Hughes completely fell off the planet after that. He was bad in 2015. And by 2016, he couldn't stay healthy and was even worse. And then got moved back into the bullpen role that he previously had had with the Yankees for a short period of time. Remember, he was a, a reliever in 2009 during their World Series run. So mistake on my part. My mistake, I apologize. <laughs> the Mets got it right, signing Bartolo Colon over Phil Hughes. They did sign Kyle Farnsworth, which was a waste of time, and they signed Bobby Abreu. We almost forget Bobby Abreu was a Met. Here's what I find so funny. The offseason going into 2015, a year in which we won the pennant, and it shows you I'm not saying this as a, hey, see, we're going to win the World Series in 2024. I'm not doing that. It's just a reminder that sometimes your offseason doesn't mean a damn thing about what's going to happen in your regular season. Because the Mets literally made two moves going into 15. Significant moves. They signed Michael Kadire. They were so excited they couldn't wait. Kadire was like one of the first guys off the board. He turned out to be a colossal waste of time, other than being friends with David Wright. And they signed John Mayberry. And the only thing I remember about John Mayberry is that when John Mayberry was hitting cleanup against the Dodgers and Clayton Kershaw during that summer, that's when we all realized, my God, this lineup needs to add anybody. So when they traded for Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, we treated them like they just acquired Ty Cobb and Willie Mays because they were humans who were major leaguers who were decent and that looked good to us. But that was the offseason. It was not... A big, big offseason. Obviously, the trade deadline is what's most memorable because of acquiring Yoannis Espedes, but it was not a huge offseason. Now we get to the offseason of 15 and 16. This is the problem. This is the big issue that I mentioned earlier about the Mets after success. 
they lose Daniel Murphy. Daniel Murphy had a historic October. Now, what I'll admit to you is that while I wasn't happy they lost Daniel Murphy, I don't want to act like I I was Gary Cohen calling him a net negative. I certainly wasn't. I didn't believe for a second that his October and really his NLCS and NLDS run that he had, because he did cool off in the World Series. I had no idea that that was going to be who he was. I thought Daniel Murphy was what he was, which was a fine player I wanted back, a guy who would hit 280, 285, a guy who would hit between 10 and 15 home runs, a guy that would drive in 70 runs, have about a 750, 760, 770 OPS, kind of in that range. Fine player. Fine player. Wouldn't strike out that much. Fine. I did not think for the life of me that what he did during those two rounds was a life-changing occurrence. And it was. And I was dead wrong about that. So while I wasn't wrong in that I didn't want him back, I did want him back. I did not think in any way he was going to hit 347 and compete for a batting title. I did not think he would drive in 100 runs and have a 985 OPS, which led the league. I did not think that. And he proved the following year that it wasn't even a fluke. He was great the following year. After that, he just couldn't stay healthy. That was the big problem with Murph. After he left the Mets, he had those two really good years in Washington, the MVP caliber year in Washington. He tortured us, as we all know. We don't have to go through that. Uh, The big problem was he, unfortunately, would end up out of baseball in a couple years just because he couldn't stay healthy. But they replace him by trading for Neil Walker. They sign as Drupal Cabrera, who is a good little player. They sign Alejandro de Aza. They sign Anthony the Bastard, Antonio Bastardo. But the story of that offseason was they lost part of the heart of that team. They did keep Yoannis. I should point that out. When they signed him to that kind of fake contract, a three-year opt-out after one. And that turned out to be their big move the following offseason. It was basically the only thing they did after 2016. They kept Yoannis Cespedes on a long-term contract, which... We all celebrated at the time, turned out to be a disaster, and the hope was going into 17, you got Yoannis back, the pitchers will be healthy because everybody got hurt at the end of 2016, you started to develop Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman, here we go. It did not turn out that way. Season was an out-and-out disaster. They go out during the offseason, they bring back Jay Bruce, they sign Adrian Gonzalez, they sign Todd Frazier, they sign Jason Vargas. They sign Anthony Swarzak, and and 2018 is 2018's weird, though. We got off to a great start. The beginning of the Mickey Calloway era was amazing. We were 11-2, and and then it all went down the dumps after that. 18 into 19 was the emergence of Brody Van Wagenen. We saw the Mets shake it up in the front office, and Brody tried. You know, the more I think about it, my my feelings towards Brody Van Wagenen are not necessarily as negative as maybe some. Like, I had hoped when Brody took over, he was going to convince ownership to spend. That's what I was hoping for with the hire. He went out and made the Edwin Diaz-Robbie Cano trade, which was such a controversial deal. Uh, my thought at the time was, if you're going to take back Cano's contract, you can't give up a, pro- a top prospect like Jared Kelnick. And if you're going to give up a prospect like Jared Kelnick, you can't take back a bad contract in Robinson Cano. 
The Mets cleared their bad contracts, Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, but they gave up two young players in Justin Dunn and Jared Kelnick. They got back the corpse of Robbie Cano, as we later found out, and Edwin Diaz. And Edwin Diaz, of course, gave us quite a ride. He's still here. He signed the extension. I think because he's on the extension, maybe you don't think of the trade as much, but obviously him being in it turned it into a success. It's tough to say today, five years later, that that trade was not a monumental success. Maybe not right away, but it worked out. The rest of his offseason did not. Jairus Familia came back. He signed Wilson Ramos. He was okay. Brought in Keon Broxton for the outfield. Traded for J.D. Davis. Did not give up a lot, so that's good. And then he signed Jed Lowry. (laughs) I, I have to defend, though, Brody. Like, Jed Lowry was coming off a really good year. Who thought Jed Lowry was not going to play baseball anymore? Did anybody see that coming? So I got to admit, I I didn't hate that move necessarily. 2020, they signed Michael Waka and Rick Porcello to give them depth, but they lost Zach Wheeler. That was the killer. That was the the story of that offseason going into 2020 is that they needed to keep Zach Wheeler, and they didn't. So signing Michael Waka and Rick Porcello was, it was... uh, wasn't nearly as good as keeping your guy. My issue with Brody is that he made the dumb comment when Wheeler left. The, uh, well, we made him a lot of money off a couple of good months. And it's like, come on, dude. Going into 2021, we get the Steve Cohen era beginning. We get the triumphant of general managers that we would flip through. The Francisco Lindor trade obviously highlighted the offseason but there was a lot of other moves that weren't made that I know disappointed a lot of us. Not getting JT Realmuto. Not getting George Springer. But they did get Jonathan VR and Taiwan Walker and Kevin Pillar and Brandon Drury and Trevor May. Now we're getting so recent, it's weird. 2022, you lose Marcus Stroman, you sign Max Scherzer, Mark Canna, Starling Marte, Eduardo Escobar, and Adam Adovino. When you look at those moves that they made going into the 2022 season, for one year, for that season that we all experienced a year and a half ago, they all really worked. Like Scherzer worked in that he was good when he pitched in the regular season. He just flamed out when it mattered the most. Mark Canna was relatively productive. Eduardo Escobar got off to an awful start, but then ended up really carrying them throughout the month of September. And Starling Marte had a really good year. And Adam Adovino had a really good year. But the following year for all of those guys, that's where things sort of went down. Marte had a terrible second year. Escobar was awful again. They end up trading him. Max Scherzer wasn't very good and couldn't consistently pitch. They end up trading him. So the 21 into 22 offseason was good for a short period of time. And that brings us to today. An offseason that I think most of us feel some kind of level between this is really underwhelming to, hey, I think this will be sneaky good, I think would be the way people view this. Look, there are going to be some extremes who think this is the worst. But like I said, if you listen to this podcast, if you sat through this podcast, and I appreciate you doing it, (laughs) you would realize that 2015, 2014, 2013, 2012, 2011, 2010, that's bad. 
That's the kind of offseason and the vitriol that I've heard describing this offseason. And this offseason, look, I mean, they sign major league baseball players, some of which, yeah, need to have bounce back years. But all of them, for the most part, on short-term deals, which I like because it keeps that flexibility flowing. So someday from now, we'll look back at this offseason and maybe we'll say, wow, that was sneaky, amazing. Can you believe it? And then they won 92 games. Or maybe this will be a fart in the wind offseason because none of the guys they added stuck around for more than one year and the team wasn't very good. We shall see. But we appreciate you listening and downloading. Of course, you can interact with us at any time, the B at gmail.com, B at gmail.com. Now, Pete Hoffman has told me, and you guys could try this out because this is what I've been told, and I trust Pete, that we now have a way where you could call us and leave a voice message. And we'll start playing some of those voice messages right here on the Rico Bronia. So would you guys like to hear the number? And hopefully it works. If it doesn't, blame Pete. I love you, Pete. 725-222-8699. That number again, if you want to voice interact with us and leave a voicemail message that we may play on a future Rico, 725-222-8699. We appreciate it. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you downloading Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>